For over 70 years, Ashner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Ashner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there's a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, about 60,000 people in the United States will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer this year. In this episode, we talk with Oshner surgical oncologist, Dr. Nathan Bolton, to learn more about the signs and symptoms of pancreatic cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to reduce risk for pancreatic cancer. So welcome, Dr. Nathan Bolton, to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, John. I'm uh, excited to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Dr. Bolton, uh, and how you got to be in your position as surgical oncologist. Sure. So I'm uh, from the region, and I did my medical school at LSU, my training actually at Ochsner, so my general surgical training at Ochsner, and then went up to New York uh, for a couple of years at Mount Sinai Hospital to do surgical oncology before coming back here a few years ago and really, you know, obviously treat a multitude of diseases, but have kind of a particular passion for pancreatic cancer and treating patients with pancreatic cancer. Let's say a patient comes to your office and they ask a very general question, and that might be, what is pancreatic cancer? How do you, how do you answer that for them? Yeah. And it's a question I, I get pretty frequently because obviously I see patients with all kinds of pancreatic pathologies and there are other pancreatic tumors. And for patients, you know, the language of cancer, tumor, lesion, right? Those things that are a little bit more natural to us can sometimes confuse patients. And so there are a number of tumors in the pancreas, but the first thing I tell patients is, you know, when you, when patients generally think of pancreatic cancer, what they're thinking of is pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Right. And so while there are other tumors that arise in the pancreas, neuroendocrine tumors, um, cystic lesions of the pancreas, very rarely metastatic lesions from other sites. Those are less common. You know, when a patient looks up pancreatic cancer, talks about a friend of the family who had pancreatic cancer, what they're talking about is pancreatic adenocarcinoma, which is a cancer that arises from the pancreas itself, from the lining of the, of the pancreatic duct, uh, and is sort of the classic uh, pathology for pancreatic cancer. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 I find, you know, if you do Google pancreatic cancer, what you're going to get is information data statistics about pancreatic adenocarcinoma. So that really doesn't apply to these other less common subtypes of pancreatic cancer. And, you know, I usually say around 95% or so of pancreatic cancers are adenocarcinoma. Yeah, is that, I agree. that accurate? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, often a question that I get when people come to me is, why did I get this? You know, what are my risk factors? And I tell them that there are a number of things and, and we know certain attributes, certain things that people were born with or lifestyle habits that would increase their risk. 
But there are a lot of patients where I can't pinpoint exactly why they develop pancreatic cancer. So, you know, some of those risk factors are one is age, and that's something you can't change. You know, as you get older, your risk for getting pancreatic cancer increases. So you're much more likely to develop pancreatic cancer when you're 70 or 80 than you are when you're 40 or 50. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible at a younger age. But, you know, other risk factors, I talk about uh, smoking. We know smoking's a risk factor. It's not just you know, lung cancer and head and neck cancer that's can caused by smoking, but also pancreatic cancer we know can be caused by smoking. Um, genetics, so a family history, someone with a, a lots of family members who have had pancreatic cancer or cancers in the pancreatic family, which we include, you know, breast, ovarian cancer, conditions like chronic pancreatitis, type 2 diabetes. And I think an important one that is particularly relevant in this area of the country is obesity. So we know that obesity drives uh, a number of pancreatic cancers. With that in mind, um, is that a question that you get a lot, Dr. Bolton? And, and and if so, you know, how do you how do you answer that? And then do you guide them for any further testing, like genetic testing or anything like that? Yeah, it's a good question, I, and I totally agree with you. I, I think patients definitely ask me that all the time, and I, I do find often that my you know first response to it is this is nothing that you did wrong, right? Because as you said, you know, the I think the number one risk factor for pancreatic cancer is age. Yeah. Uh, there are sort of lifestyle risks that you mentioned, um, and it's important, obviously, for all people to sort of try to adhere to a healthy lifestyle. But I, I find myself answering that question a lot and, and really directing patients and telling them, you know, this isn't, you didn't bring this on yourself. This is uh, a tough diagnosis. But certainly when patients come to see us, you know, and the NCCN now recommends genetic testing for all new diagnoses of pancreatic cancer, and we're kind of increasingly recognizing this potential genetic component in five to 10%. And some people think maybe even a little bit more in terms of unrecognized, you know, genetic contributions to pancreatic cancer. So we are recommending that patients get genetic testing. I know you guys are on board with that. And we have genetic uh, counselors at Auctioner. And I think that's become an important part of diagnosing pancreas cancer and sort of family planning and education. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, you alluded to the NCCN, which is our, our kind of national cancer guidelines. Um, and, and yeah, I agree. We, we are routinely sending patients with newly diagnosed pancreatic cancer uh, to get genetic counseling and uh, potentially get genetic testing. And it's important for a couple reasons. One, of course, is because if we just take a family history, we're going to be missing some patients who uh, actually are genetically predispositioned to get pancreatic cancer. So if you take a family history and they don't have any family history and you say, oh, you don't need genetic testing, I think we're actually missing some people. So that's one of the reasons to have this universal guideline. And the other is because in patients with advanced cancer, there's a potential therapy difference in patients who have a genetic uh, component to their pancreatic cancer. There are certain drugs that we know can work a little bit better in patients who have some uh, genetic cause to their pancreatic cancer. So moving on to kind of you know, what are patients' symptoms, signs? You know, you see patients a lot of times who are at their initial diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. You know, one of the first people they're, they're referred to is a, is a surgeon. So what are some of the most common signs, symptoms that you hear uh, when you meet these patients? Yeah, and they can be really vague, John. It, it's a, one of the reasons that pancreatic cancer is so difficult is that those signs and symptoms often are later presentations. And what I tell patients uh, is that, you know, the pancreas is an organ that sort of spans across your abdomen and where we get the cancer in the pancreas really determines what those symptoms are. So the classic kind of presentation of a patient with jaundice, the yellow eyes, right? And the, the yellow skin, that's a tumor in the head of the pancreas. That's a tumor that 
as it grows, blocks the bile duct, right? And those are actually, that's the more common way that those patients find their way to me because those are cancers that present with symptoms, right? So those patients are, have a symptom that is unusual that prompts them to seek out medical attention and they come see me. The tumors that are when, in what we call the body and the tail of the pancreas farther out to the left side of the abdomen are much more difficult to diagnose. They grow for a longer period of time before they start causing symptoms. And those symptoms often are are sort of vague and can be applied to a lot of different abdominal pathologies. So things like vague abdominal pain, epigastric pain, reflux, sometimes pain that sort of bores into their back. That's a very classic description of pancreatic cancer. Weight loss is a, a hallmark of pancreatic cancer, especially tumors in the body of the pancreas. So sort of loss of appetite and, and weight loss are very classic symptoms. So the I think the, the long and shorter is that the symptoms can be sort of vague in general, but outside of the head of the pancreas where that sort of classic presentation of jaundice, right? A blockage of the liver and a high liver enzyme levels. They tend to be sort of vague epigastric abdominal pain and weight loss. Right. And so, you know, based on that, it, it's not uncommon that patients will have this complaint of these vague symptoms that have been going on for sometimes weeks to many months mm -hmm. before they finally get the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which in some cases accounts for a lot of them being di diagnosed at a relatively later stage than in other cancers where you can catch it earlier. And it can be very frustrating for them for sure, because it, it tends to be, a, again, a vague symptom that they've had sort of general complaints about, like you said, for sometimes up to several months. And then sort of when this diagnosis hits them, it's a big surprise. And that's always really disappointing. Absolutely. And, and a couple other things that we're starting to appreciate more is one, this idea of new onset diabetes. Mm -hmm. So patients who, you know, have never had diabetes their whole life. And then uh, all of a sudden in their middle age or older age, they get diagnosed with type two diabetes. They might have some weight loss accompanied with it. And it just is a little bit puzzling why that would happen. We're finding a lot of those patients in the next, you know, one to two years end up with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. That's something we're trying to investigate a little bit more to see if that's a population in which maybe we could offer them screening for pancreatic cancer. And, and then another uh, symptom that I find that precedes some patients with pancreatic cancer is actually depression. And depression is uh, coexists with pancreatic cancer, oftentimes, of course, after the diagnosis, as you get adjusted to uh, carrying this diagnosis. But also we see patients who sometimes get diagnosed with depression before they get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So there's probably some complex interplay there with the brain and, you know, what's going on uh, with the cancer that, you know, we're still yet to fully flesh out. Mm -hmm. So a patient comes in. They, you know, have had some of the diagnostic workup. They think they have pancreatic cancer. You know, we kind of run through the algorithm of how we finish working up these patients, diagnosing them and staging them. So I will tell you that a lot of the patients who come to me, they come already with a CT scan. So that's a CAT scan. This is a scan that takes slices of your body and looks at it, basically tries to create a three-dimensional uh, appearance of the inside of your body. And that's really the gold standard for making a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. We like to use contrast and use a specific pancreas protocol so that we can see exactly the interplay between the pancreatic tumor and the blood vessels, which has important relation to you know what their uh, potential surgical options are, which I won't get into because that's your area of specialty. <laughs> and then we also need biopsies. So you know we don't just make a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer in the vast majority of times based on the imaging. We use biopsies. So tell me a little bit, Dr. Bolton, what do you what do you recommend? Someone comes in with a CT scan about how to confirm that this is pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And, I, and similar, I'm sure to you, people kind of get into my office with presumed diagnoses of pancreas cancer with sort of uh, oftentimes 
sort of various components of what we would consider to be complete workup, but not all of them. And I agree with you, a CT scan, a CAT scan of the chest and the abdomen and pelvis is an important consideration. And then biopsies were really the gold standard is an endoscopic biopsy. And we've been really very fortunate in this region at Auctioner and also some of our partners um, regionally uh, have the ability and the expertise to do endoscopic biopsies where they go down with an endoscope through the mouth into the stomach and using an ultrasound device on the end of that endoscope, they can see this tumor and they can actually pass a needle and get biopsies, which is really the the least invasive and probably most consistent way for us to get an answer about uh, what sort of tumor that we're dealing with. Yeah, and, and, and those endoscopic ultrasounds are also quite helpful at also giving you a little more information about the location of the tumor, the size of it, and potentially it's how much interaction it has with the blood vessels around it too, in addition to what you can see on the CT scan. Yeah, I would call them complementary modalities for sure. They help us in terms of looking at the vascular anatomy, and they also allow you to look at lymph nodes in the region and even potentially biopsy lymph nodes in the region to confirm whether there are positive lymph nodes, which can help you sort of in your mind decide what pathway of treatment you want to go on. So they're very useful and I think really a a necessary component to working up new pancreatic masses. Exactly. So having experienced endoscopists, GI physicians who have much, again, experience working with these patients and and knowing how to evaluate these lesions, you know, obviously we, we... are blessed to have those resources at Oshner. I think we're fortunate, and, and it's even more than that. I think it's a, a system of getting patients in very quickly for those diagnoses, a good kind of patient flow for getting them done and getting patients home, and also on-site pathology, right, which a lot of places don't have. So the ability to confirm that the biopsy that you've taken is going to give you that answer so that we're not getting a lot of non-diagnostic biopsies and having to repeat procedures, which is a, a problem um, as well. So I think it's a great workflow. And I, yeah, we've been very fortunate. I think our GI team uh, has tons of experience. It's a great team. So the other workup piece that we often do is something called a tumor marker. Now, this is a blood test of proteins that are spilled into your blood and you can collect a sample of blood and, and check for these proteins. In pancreas cancer, the most common protein that's elevated, the most common tumor marker that's elevated is something called cancer antigen or CA19-9. So CA19 is a very commonly elevated pancreatic cancer tumor marker uh, that we use. It sometimes can help us in diagnosis, but also more in determining the stage. And then what we really use it for is assessing the response to treatment. Uh, Are there any other tumor markers that you routinely check, Dr. Bolden? I, you know, when I have a known biopsy proven pancreatic cancer, CA99, I agree, is really the critical one. Um, certainly when you're working up pancreatic masses, you know, checking a CEA, you know, we can see sometimes. But really the CA99 is, the, I think, the gold standard. And you're right. I think it's a, I always tell patients, this isn't a test to diagnose the cancer, but this is added information and allows us to follow our how your tumor is responding to the treatments that we give you. Great. So next I want to get into a little bit of the staging. Now, in a lot of cancers, we use a stage of stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, even getting more detailed. You can apply a T stage, an N stage, and an M stage for the the tumor size, the lymph nodes, and whether there's metastatic disease present. For pancreatic cancer, that exists. Uh, We have that guideline. But uh, I think we, we tend to look at pancreatic cancer more on a functional staging. So talk to me a little bit about how you 
approach patients and stage them. Yeah. I, and I talk a lot to patients about this. I think it's important. And I, I try to break it down to people like this. When they come to see me, I tell them there are really sort of only a few forks in the road for pancreatic cancer. And the first fork is based on our staging, based on our CAT scans, the tumor markers, the endoscopic ultrasound, do we think that this is a metastatic or a non-metastatic tumor? Meaning, do we see evidence that the tumor has spread from the pancreas to other organ sites? And the most common sites that pancreatic tumors like to go to are the liver and the lungs, and also uh, a little bit less commonly, the lining of the abdomen. We call that peritoneal carcinomatosis or disease inside the abdominal wall lining. And so in the absence of any of that disease on any of the imaging, this is a non-metastatic tumor, meaning it's not spread to other organs. And so then you have a patient that is non-metastatic. And then the next fork in the road is, what is the relationship of this tumor to the major blood vessels that live behind the pancreas? Because that determines whether we can successfully and safely take out the tumor with an operation, uh, which really kind of drives how you're gonna approach this tumor. And there's a lot of language associated with that that we use as surgeons, but basically it comes down to resectable tumors, which are tumors that are in the pancreas that are not directly involving those blood vessels, meaning we can remove them, right? And not have to work on the blood vessels and get what we call a negative margin, remove the whole tumor. There are borderline resectable tumors, and those are tumors that are touching the blood vessels in a way that we think we probably can still remove them, but we would like a little bit of help. We'd love to see that tumor shrink away from the blood vessels. We may even have to do some work on those blood vessels, like cutting part of them out and reconstructing them, right? But those are tumors that we have a goal of getting those patients to surgery. And then that last sort of um, group we call locally advanced or unresectable tumors, and those are very complicated tumors because they're involving those blood vessels in a way that we don't feel like we have a, a great safe option for cutting them out. Um, and, and they're more challenging and really those are patients that are not candidates for surgery. And then the last thing that we talk about really is, I always tell patients this, I can it, do a beautiful technical operation for you, but if you walk, come in here in a wheelchair, right, you're gonna die in the hospital and I have not helped you. So the other component really is the fitness of the patient. And I think it's a really important component, not just to assess upfront, but that, that's a modifiable, modifiable risk factor, right? That's something that we can often improve upon. And I think we have a very strong program, our prehabilitation program for trying to improve patients' fitness, nutrition, uh, in preparation for big operations. Yeah, and th thanks. I think you laid that out extremely clearly and well. I think what I hear a lot from my patients who maybe have seen a surgeon and they get diagnosed with maybe a locally advanced pancreatic cancer and they come to me and they're like, I, I don't understand. My, pan my pancreatic tumor has not spread. Why can't they just go take it out? And I right. say, well, you know, I think this is a better <laughs> question for the surgeon, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's an issue of safety and making sure you're getting it all out. And that's the big problem. I mean, is that an accurate answer? It is. And I, I find that to really be the most frustrating stage of this disease, right? Because for, in terms of kind of patients being able to, you know, really process where they're at, you know, resectable tumors make sense to people. Metastatic tumors make sense to people, right? But tumors that you're just saying, ah, it's there, I don't think I can get it out, right? That's an unsatisfying answer. But what it comes down to is the pancreas is an organ that has very complex relationships to all the blood flow to the bowel, all the blood flow to the liver. Those are regions of the body that we can't just cut out and hope to have a, a functioning, right, survivable operation. 
And then the other thing that you touched on is, you know, margin status, right? We're really not helping patients if we go in and take out part of a tumor. And so the, at some point there are sort of hard landmarks that you can't go beyond. And if the tumor is involving those, then you're the only hope you have is to take out a piece of the tumor. And then you've, what I tell patients is I've subjected you to all the risks of this operation, but none of the benefits. And that's just not a place that I like to be. Okay, great. Yeah. You, you would explain that a lot better than I would. So, um, Okay, so so let's let's take this first bucket, this first bucket of patients who, you know, I, I wish every patient would come in the door with this. Uh, you have a patient with a surgically resectable pancreatic cancer, meaning we can, we meaning the surgery team can go in and take this thing out. What what's the usual approach to that patient after they've had their full diagnostic workup? You know, how are, how are we treating those patients? So. There are there's certainly a variety of ways to approach that patient, and the way that we're doing it, first off, is to do a uh, complete assessment of a patient's functional status. And I talked about earlier our prehabilitation department. What we have in our clinic, uh, basically a, a team that's dedicated to looking at functional status, doing objective measurements like how quickly people can get up out of a chair and walk a certain distance and come back, which are objective measures to determine whether they can tolerate an operation. And most people can tolerate an operation. And that's important to understand. You know, we don't, we're not testing people to discourage them. We're trying to look at is this a patient that we think we can get to surgery, but it might need a little bit of help from us, right? Physical therapy, nutritional interventions. Once that is done and we have a, a fit and functional patient and a resectable tumor, we present every patient with pancreatic cancer at our tumor board at Auctioner. So me and my two partners, right, our surgical oncology team are present, our medical oncology team, you, John, and obviously your partners, our radiation oncology team. We have radiologists that review all the scans, our pathologists, our gastrointestinal pathologists that looks at all the slides. So it's really a great team. And I always tell patients, I kind of joke, I tell them, we're going to talk behind your back a little bit. Right. But really what you're trying to get is a, a 12 for one opinion. You saw me, but I'm going to make sure that we have 12 or 13 people that are on the same page. I like that. Traditionally, the way that we approach those patients at Auctioner is to, to start them on a course of systemic chemotherapy, right? Usually for two to three months, we call that neoadjuvant therapy or before surgery therapy. So our plan is to get them to surgery, right? And we're treating them upfront with part of their chemotherapy before restaging them with CAT scans and talking about an operation to remove the tumor. Great. So I agree with you exactly. And I think that's a practice that's being adopted probably more and more across the country is doing this yeah. neoadjuvant chemotherapy where you're giving them chemo before. And, you know, if you do look at the historical standard of care for pancreatic cancer for these resectable patients is you do upfront surgical resection, and then they come to the medical oncologist to complete what we call adjuvant chemotherapy, meaning it's coming after the surgery. The current standard of care for patients who are getting chemotherapy after surgical resection is to do six months of chemotherapy. And for the most fit patient who can tolerate the most aggressive chemotherapy, the current recommendation is do a combination of chemotherapy that's called fulfirinox. The recent data has supported that as uh, what's been found to be the most effective chemotherapy at uh, prolonging survival and hopefully preventing this cancer from ever coming back. What about patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer? We know that those patients, by definition, are unable to get surgery. So those are patients who will usually either come straight to me, a medical oncologist, or 
uh, initially see a surgical oncologist only in their workup, unfortunately, to be diagnosed with metastatic disease. Sometimes it's very subtle, right? I mean, you've probably had patients where you take them for what you are hoping is a curative intent surgery, only to find that they or oh, not. Absolutely. It's a disappointing finding, but that happens to us, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it frequently, but we certainly are all familiar with that, you know, where people have all their CAT scans and all their imaging that doesn't show obvious metastatic disease, but you find it on exploration. Right. So most patients, exactly like you said, if they have metastatic pancreatic cancer, we'll know that from the get-go. And uh, in those patients, uh, unfortunately, the only option is systemic therapy, meaning treatment for cancer that goes everywhere throughout your body. Now, in pancreatic cancer, the tried and true treatment is chemotherapy. Uh, we have combinations of chemotherapy drugs that we use that we know work better than if you use one chemotherapy agent at a time. So if you look at what the standard of care for stage four or metastatic pancreatic cancer is, it's a combination chemotherapy with either one of two regimens that are the most commonly used. One of them is a combination of three drugs, and that regimen is called Fulfirinox. The other one is a combination of two drugs, and that's gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, or also known as abraxane. Um, these regimens are a little bit different. They're different in how they're administered, the frequency. I tend to use them both every other week, but uh, they can be uh, different in terms of their side effects. And, and that when they were studied, they were looking at different populations. So the patients who were studied with the Fulfirinox, the three-drug regimen, you know, in the initial studies that got that regimen approved, they were looking at a very, very select group of patients who they thought could tolerate a three-drug regimen. Whereas in the gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, they were a little bit more liberal in who they included in terms of how fit those patients were. So sometimes the fitness of the patient factors in to which chemotherapy agents we use. Now, if someone gets treated with one regimen for chemotherapy and that works for some amount of time and then it stops working based on the CT scans, their tumor markers or side effects, then we usually switch if they're able to and they can tolerate it to either the other one or um, a, a similar regimen to the other one that they didn't receive in that first line setting. One thing that we always think about is are these patients candidates for clinical trials, especially in the stage four metastatic setting? We know for the most part that what patients' outcomes are gonna be when they get started on chemotherapy. Now we can't predict that from patient to patient who's gonna respond, who's not gonna respond, but we know that chemotherapy only works so well. And the idea behind clinical trials is, is there something we can do to make that endpoint longer, to prolong the survival, to make the average patient do a little bit better or hopefully a lot better than they could do with just being on chemotherapy. Uh, one of the agents we look a lot at in other cancers is something called immunotherapy. That is a way that's different from chemotherapy to treat cancer, and it's really aimed at harnessing the tools of the, your natural immune system to attack cancer. Now, that's worked really well in cancers like melanoma and cancers like lung cancer and bladder cancers and kidney cancers and a handful of other cancers. But unfortunately, in, in pancreatic cancer, immunotherapy has, has really failed. And it's been unfortunate, and we're still looking at it to see if we can combine it with other therapies, if we can try a different approach to how to harness the immune system and use a different approach that's maybe not being looked at in those other cancer types. You know, that's kind of where the field's at today. We also try to do something called molecular profiling for our patients with advanced pancreatic cancer. What that is, is we look 
at their tumors, and we try to see if there are specific mutation or genes or proteins that are abnormal specific to their tumors, that potentially we have a drug that can target. So if there's a patient who has a particular pathway in their cells that is driving their cancer to become cancer, is there a way we can hijack that process, cut it off, and starve that tumor of its energy and its its fuel to grow? Now, in pancreatic cancer, sometimes we can find those. It's the minority of patients, um, but uh, we do recommend it checking on our patients because uh, some studies have shown for patients who you can find a therapy that targets that abnormality in a patient who has an abnormality, those patients can do uh, better than patients who uh, just remain on chemotherapy. We also have clinical trials we're looking at in early stage settings. So um, can you talk about any of that? Yeah, we actually have two clinical trials that we're running. One is more clinically based, you know, how are we treating patients? And, and another I can talk about in terms of uh, developing screening tests for pancreatic cancer, for early detection of pancreatic cancer. So the screening test, uh, I'll tell you, we were participating in a, a multi-institutional trial called the UL1 trial, which is looking at essentially taking blood tests from patients with new diagnoses of pancreas cancer. Also looking at after they have surgery, looking at the specimen and, and essentially trying to find new biomarkers, you know, microRNA signatures of cancer in the hopes of diagnosing patients with pancreas cancer before they present with those symptoms that we talked about, vague epigastric pain, weight loss, you know, jaundice, and finding patients with earlier stage which is sort of known across cancers, right? If you can diagnose people earlier, then you can cure more people. And so the goal obviously is to diagnose at the earliest stage possible. So that's one trial that we participate in and we try to enroll all of our uh, new diagnoses of pancreatic cancer and pancreatic cysts in. And then the other trial for non-metastatic disease that we're looking at, again, is this sort of idea of how do we sequence therapy? And I sell this to patients. I tell them, you know, everybody with non-metastatic pancreas cancer, the goal of them is to get surgery and chemotherapy. And really the debate comes in at sort of what is the order of those things. And we talked about earlier that our preferred approach has been to give at least some of that chemotherapy first and then do surgery. Uh, and that is an approach that has been pretty widely adopted, especially in academic centers nationally, but is certainly not sort of known what the right order of those therapies are. And so one of the trials we're, we're currently enrolling in is looking at taking patients with resectable pancreatic cancer and offering them one of two pathways. The first is to do surgery first and then to complete the full course of chemotherapy after they've recovered from surgery versus giving some of the chemotherapy first, uh, which is sort of our, our practice currently, doing the operation and finishing the chemotherapy. And I think that's really a... a a uh, hot topic right now in medical and surgical circles of, you know, how should we be applying these therapies to people? We know people do better with both, but what is really the ideal sequence of those treatments? Right. And that latter study uh, about the sequencing is, you know, a multi-institutional study that um, is accruing, you know, several hundred patients and mm -hmm. hopefully will be able to give us some more insight as to what the proper sequence is. So I'm glad we're, we're being able to uh, offer that at our institution. So now we'll turn to our recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk? So in this case, uh, I'm going to present this question to you, Dr. Bolton. What can I do to decrease my risk of pancreatic cancer? Sure. And we talked earlier about the sort of, you know, obviously there are modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors for all cancers. And like you said, you know, age, you can't change your age and there's nothing you can do there. But 
smoking and obesity are really probably the two biggest modifiable risk factors. And there is data for you know, European data for healthy lifestyle indexes, measurements of healthy lifestyle indices and the risk of pancreatic cancer, right? So patients that live generally healthier lifestyles have a lower risk of pancreatic cancer. And that tends to be my advice to to patients instead of getting into a lot of specifics obviously if you're smoking you should stop smoking right if you're not smoking don't start right if you consume alcohol at an inappropriate rate you ought to back down on that and, you know there are kind of obvious things that really people some really don't need to be told they know it and they just aren't doing it yet but the big thing i tell people is adopting a healthy lifestyle has been shown to reduce your risk of not just pancreas cancer obviously but other cancers but certainly there's data in pancreas cancer uh, that living a healthy lifestyle reduces your risk. So diet, exercise, no smoking, right? Very moderate alcohol consumption are all, um, I think, modifiable risk factors. And because I get this question a lot, what do you consider a moderate amount of yeah. alcohol? I, I, I joke with patients a lot. And, you know, I treat a good bit of chronic pancreatitis too. And so patients that um, drink alcohol and oftentimes they'll back off to what is considered a moderate amount of alcohol. And I'll say, that is moderate. That's how much I drink. You need to drink less than me. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, a moderate amount of alcohol, you know, is defined by multiple sort of health organizations. Uh, and it's usually something like, you know, for men, you know, a hand, two to three drinks uh, a week. Right. And so most people don't adhere to that, to be perfectly honest. And so it's a standard that a lot of us don't live up to. But it's important, I think, when you're thinking about what is a healthy lifestyle to know what that really is. Right. And then what about, what do you tell folks who may have a, a family history of pancreatic cancer? What would you recommend for those folks who are worried about their risk? Yeah, well, their risk is elevated. So first degree relatives of patients with pancreatic cancer, um, patients with known genetic right syndromes, BRCA mutations, BRCA mutations, some childhood syndromes like Peutz-Jaegers. You know, there are a number of syndromes that predispose us to pancreas cancer at an earlier stage in life. And I think uh, those patients really ought to see uh, a genetic counselor first off, right? They ought to have that sort of information in their in their banks, uh, and they ought to be watched by a, a uh, appropriate uh, medical professional. Uh, and the general recommendation is to start screening at the age. There's a little bit of debate about this at the age of 50. Uh, some people would argue 55, right, or 10 years before the age of diagnosis of that first degree relative. So it's similar to sort of colon cancer, right? If you have mm -hmm. a first degree family member that was diagnosed with colon cancer at age 50, you ought to start getting screened at 40. And right. the same goes for pancreatic cancer 10 years before that first degree relative. Okay. As far as our next recurring segment is how do we treat this cancer at Oshner? So how do we treat pancreatic cancer at Oshner? We've touched about this a little bit, uh, but walk me through what we're doing at Oshner for a patient who comes in first for resectable pancreatic cancer. So the first is to complete our staging, like we talked about, CAT scans, endoscopic ultrasounds, biopsies, tissue diagnoses, tumor markers. And once we have all that information, we present all these patients at our tumor boards so we can all talk about them and come up with a plan. Currently for resectable pancreatic cancer, we're trying to enroll all patients in our trial looking at sequence of therapy. So again, all those patients really need chemotherapy and surgery. The order of that is uh, we're uh, enrolling patients in this trial either to have surgery first and then chemotherapy or chemotherapy first and then surgery. You know, you probably wouldn't say this because you'd be tooting your own horn, but we know there is data that shows that centers that do a large volume of pancreas surgeries, patients' outcomes are better. 
Yeah, and I do we I do have to talk about that a lot because obviously patients know that. That's not um, you know, when patients sort of look for information on pancreas cancer, this is a big diagnosis. So people always come having done some homework. And that's a very common theme, you know, when you look at sort of especially patient advocacy groups for pancreatic cancer. And so it's something that they ask us a lot about. Uh, and and so I have kind of a, a I mean I always tell people I even introduce the patients this is my spiel on this right because it's it's repeated right. you know so many times that inflection point is somewhere around ten or twelve cases a year institutionally so a hospital that does ten to twelve pancreatic resections a year that inflection point uh, means that uh, patients ought to do better, right? Their, complicate, their risk of complications is lower. And so what I tell patients is that we do between 60 and 100 pancreatic resections a year between our three partners, uh, me and, and my two partners. So we're all doing probably 30 to 35 pancreatic resections a year. It's a very high volume pancreatic cancer program. Uh, and we feel very strongly that we're providing good quality care uh, to those patients. And for patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer, um, I, I mean, I will address how we treat those patients to Oshner because those are patients that are coming through my office and my colleagues' offices. So if the first thing we do is always think, is there a clinical trial for this patient? Like I said before, we can put patients on chemotherapy and we know the limits of what chemotherapy can do. We're always looking, can we do something better? Can we, can we push those boundaries of what we can offer our patients with pancreatic cancer? Uh, so that's the first question I always ask myself. Now, if it's not in the first treatment, then can I offer them a clinical trial in the second treatment? But if not, if there's no clinical trial or they aren't a candidate or uh, they opt not to do a clinical trial for whatever reason, I do recommend chemotherapy. I do have pretty much universally my patients meet with a nutritionist. You know, malnutrition for a variety of reasons is a very uh, common complication of pancreatic cancer and the treatment for pancreatic cancer, whether it's in the early stage or advanced stages. So our working with our nutrition team is, is vital component of our care. And importantly, patients with advanced pancreatic cancer, I early on in their treatment, get them a consultation with our palliative care physicians. Now, our palliative care physicians are uh, exceptional in their uh, management of supportive care. Now, what I mean by that is they manage side effects, uh, both from the chemotherapy and the cancer itself. They're experts in managing psychological side effects, physical side effects, emotional side effects, and they are important resource and resource dealing with discussions that come towards the end of life. And we have data from many cancers that shows the earlier on that palliative care teams are involved in cancer care, patients have better qualities of life. And certain proxies we use to measure that show that the patients have more satisfaction with their care, and some of them even are living longer. So, you know, we think it's a crucial component of the care we provide for our patients with advanced pancreatic cancer, among other cancers we treat. Our next segment is what to ask your oncologist at your first appointment. So what should I ask my surgical or medical oncologist at my first appointment upon getting diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting question. And, you know, the first thing that patients, we kind of went over this earlier, but I'll tell you, the first thing that patients almost always ask me is, what stage am I? Uh, and we've talked about, you know, the staging of other cancers. And what I really, I kind of almost try to direct people away from that. And I, and I get into sort of what I talked about earlier, which is, you know, the forks in the road, right? Is this metastatic or non-metastatic? Uh, and can this come out with surgery or not, which is in pancreas cancer in particular, probably more important than whether this is stage one or two or three. Um, 
And so I think the things to ask for new diagnoses of pancreas cancer are are really the simple questions. You know, where is this tumor? What does it look like on the scan? Does it look like one that could come out with surgery or not? Uh, and is there evidence of metastatic disease? And then I think once you have that information, what you really want to know are what are the options in front of me? Um, and I think it's important for patients to to I, I tell patients this all the time, but you know my approach has always been sort of collaborative with patients. I, I don't really like to tell them what to do. I like to give them all the options and, and I certainly try to direct them if I think there's a clear right answer. But it's important, I think, for patients to understand all the options in front of them, which include you know, no therapy and what are the consequences of that, chemotherapy, surgery, sometimes radiation, right, depending on their stage. So uh, I like to make sure that, you know, all those things are on the table in front of them so that they're making informed decisions. Uh, and then certainly, and John, you can comment on this. I mean, I think for metastatic cancer patients, it, it often does sort of fly past them, but you've talked a lot about clinical trial availability. I think patients sort of forget to ask about this sometimes. Yeah, I think that's something I I have to bring up a lot, or and and some patients bring it up themselves. Is that they've been doing their own research, they look in the clinical trials, and sometimes there are clinical trials we have at Oshner. Sometimes they ask me about clinical trials that are being offered at other centers, and I I'll give you my honest opinion. If mm -hmm. I think we have something great to offer, I'll tell you about it. If I think we don't have a great clinical trial option, but I heard about this something they're offering in Houston or in New York or in Boston, then you know I'll be the first to tell you that I think that's a good option. I think clinical trials. Are, are something that, you know, need to be discussed with your oncologist. I think you're right that predominantly that happens in the metastatic setting, just, you know, based on where most clinical trials are, are, are focused. But it, it's a conversation that uh, if your oncologist doesn't bring up, I would certainly make a point of asking him or her about it. And for our last recurring segment, I'm going to pose a couple uh, fact or fiction. Okay. So the first fact or fiction, pancreatic cancer is universally fatal. There's no point of treatment. Right. And I think there, the answer to that, uh, first off, is clear. It's not that's a fiction. It's not universally fatal. But the answer also gets a little more subtle because, you know, for patients, even for metastatic cancer patients, right? And, and you know this, Sean, you, you don't tell patients you're going to cure them of their metastatic cancer, of their metastatic pancreas cancer. But that doesn't mean there's no point in treatment, right? So there's plenty of data that even in the metastatic setting uh, that treatment not only prolongs their life, but actually can improve their quality of life score, subjective quality of life score. So a lot of patients come to you and, and, and probably say, boy, the chemotherapy is just going to make me too sick. You know, I don't want to, if I'm going to die of pancreas cancer, I don't want to be sick on chemotherapy. But there's plenty of data that says that chemotherapy improves their quality of life, improves their symptoms from the tumor. And then in non-metastatic setting, you know, the most recent data that we have on sort of our modern chemotherapy regimens uh, and surgery, right? Uh, shows that there is a, a percentage of patients that were really giving prolonged disease-free intervals and, and in fact, you know, probably five-year survivors, cures of pancreas cancer. If you asked that question 10 years ago, uh, I think most realistic people would tell you we're, you know, even resectable patients were only curing, what, 15%, 10%. I think that number on the, based on the most recent data is probably, I, I like to be an optimist and round up. It's in the 40s, but I say it's a coin flip, right? There's a 50% chance of cure with resectable cancer, which uh, is a huge improvement. And that's over the course of 10 years, you know, 10 years from now, who knows where we'll be. So I think that's clearly a fiction. I think we have plenty of good treatment options for uh, pancreatic cancer across stages that are either with curative intent or with palliative intent that can make patients feel better, live longer, and preserve their quality of life for the longest possible time. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, I'll specifically comment on the metastatic setting is, I mean, you, you sold it pretty well, is that I tell my patients, especially if they're very symptomatic from their advanced pancreas cancer, where they come to see me is say, you know, chemotherapy can make you feel better. If it does its job in reducing the volume of disease, you know, the severity of the symptoms it's causing you, you can feel better with chemotherapy and that can outweigh, you know, the potential side effects of chemotherapy. Now, obviously I can't guarantee that, but that is one of the most important goals along with prolonging life. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. All right. The next factor fiction, surgery for pancreatic cancer is dangerous and not worth the risk. I'm going to say fiction, John. As the pancreatic cancer surgeon on this, uh, I'm right down say, the middle. Yeah, I'm going to say fiction. No, I think it's important, um, and it's you know that's it's really an interesting. You hear that a lot, sort of out and about. But I have very few patients that come to me and are, are essentially saying, "Boy, I don't, I don't think I should have this surgery. I hear it's too dangerous." And part of that might be that the disease is enough. You know, they're they're worried enough about the disease that they're willing to accept the the risk. But again, I have what I if there are any of my patients that are going to listen to this, they're probably going to roll their eyes because they've heard the spiel. I, I say, I talk a lot about the risks of pancreatic surgery and uh, risk reduction in pancreatic surgery. We talked about volume, right? High volume centers and reducing those risks. And I think that's important. You know, at Auctioner, our rolling three-year mortality, right? The risk of you dying from this operation is about 1% after pancreatic resection, which is um, as good as you'll find anywhere in the world, right? So, I think ultimately we do do this operation safely uh, in the vast majority of patients. There are real short-term complications associated with pancreatic cancer, and it's always important to me that patients understand those complications. Uh, and the thing I always tell patients is, you know, there are two pathways after this operation, the straight and narrow, where you do well, and I can pretty much predict almost your entire hospital course. You'll be in the hospital on average about six days. You'll go home doing everything for yourself. You'll see me in clinic a week later, and we're going to have you on the right track. And then that other sort of side of it, you have some sort of complication that we have to get you through. And then I tell people, you're in the hospital till I'm good and happy. And I don't make any promises on how long that'll be. And I tell people that because I want them to be prepared, right, for the worst. But most patients do very well after these operations. They recover well. They recover uneventfully. They go home and resume really getting back to a good quality of life, right, a baseline quality of life. All right, great. So we'll put that in the fiction category. Yeah, yes. We can keep sending our patients to surgeons. Um, okay, and the final one I have is that even high-risk patients shouldn't be screened for pancreatic cancer because we don't have any screening techniques for pancreatic cancer. Fact or fiction? Yeah, so it's a fiction that they shouldn't be screened. I, I think clearly we have data on uh, high-risk patients, their risk of developing pancreatic cancer, and I think we, we do have screening modalities. You're right in the sense that we can't diagnose microscopic pancreatic cancer yet, right? And I think I really do expect that over the next sort of five to 10 years, we are going to develop blood tests that can diagnose pancreatic cancer at a stage where we still can't see it on any sort of modern imaging. But right now we have you know, fairly sensitive imaging tests, three-dimensional imag in imaging tests, MRIs, CT scans, endoscopic ultrasounds. There is, I think, general acceptance that patients at high risk of developing pancreatic cancer should be screened. There is a little bit of sort of debate about how to screen them. Uh, at an auctioner, we tend to alternate endoscopic ultrasounds and MRIs in young patients at high risk. And we find that that combination of those two modalities is probably the most sensitive. We talked earlier about, you know, that workup of pancreas cancer and the fact that the endoscopic ultrasound and the CT scan are complementary. And I think the same thing 
when you're looking for small early cancers, I think they're complementary. They, they're basically two different views of the same thing and they allow you to kind of see subtleties that one might miss. And so we've tended to alternate yearly endoscopic ultrasound and MRIs in young patients, trying to avoid obviously the radiation from CAT scans in young patients repetitively. Um, but I, I think it's important for those patients to get screened because like we talked about, you know, in all cancers, we're more successful treating and curing cancers when we catch them early. That's right. And well, well, look, Dr. Bolton, I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me today and kind of giving our, our listeners just a really great but in-depth overview of our approach to pancreatic cancer. You know, what from the diagnosis, what is pancreatic cancer, the stages, what our treatment options are. I think, you know, you've helped kind of really define what we do, what we see and, and, and you know, how we can best help our patients. So thanks for coming out. Thanks for talking with us today. And I'll see you in the hospital. Yeah, definitely, John. This is great. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me to do this uh, and look forward to hopefully doing some more with you. So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the pancreatic cancer types and treatment options available. The Ochsner Pancreatic Cancer Treatment Team uses advanced surgical techniques and the latest therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Ochsner, go to my.ochsner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Ochsner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.